The reading of the Scriptures from Genesis chapter 14, reading verses 17 to 24. May God uh, give us grace both to read and to hear His Word in faith. After His return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner and Eshcol and Mamre take their share. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I invite you to join me again in a time of prayer. Oh, Father, once again we come to you. We praise your name. We worship you. We adore you. For great are you and greatly to be praised. We are thankful for all that you have done for us, are doing, will do. In grace, we're thankful for every good gift that comes down from heaven, uh, preeminently the gift of your beloved Son, whom we worship along with the Holy Spirit, and we're thankful as well for the gift of the Spirit to us, who gives us new life, who pours into our hearts the love of God and guides us in the paths of righteousness. Thank you for our daily bread, watching over us and caring for us. Bless that which we have given back in return to you, uh, bless it to the advancement of thy son's kingdom. Uh, remember those who are unable to attend uh, by reason of age or infirmity. Uh, bless them. Be near to them. Uh, bless those undergoing treatments of what other kind, that it may be well with their bodies as it is with their souls. Bless our homes, our children, grandchildren, uh, that they would not become prey to the evil one, but that we would have the joy of seeing them all walking in the truth. That is a work of God, and we implore it uh, for them. Uh, protect us in this world, uh, particularly the spiritual dangers uh, that we might give ourselves wholly unto you without fear of any who oppose us, uh, that we might be salt and light in the places where you have put us. Beyond this, we all come with uh, unspoken things that distress us, uh, May we uh, commend them to you, um, cast our care upon you, knowing that you care for us, and we'll work all things for glory, for your glory, and for our good. Now, Father, bless Phil uh, as he holds forth from this uh, text in Genesis. Bless your word to us. May it go forth in the power of the Spirit. And we ask the Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, that it may teach us and equip us for life uh, in this fallen world uh, and to 
bear witness and live in a way pleasing to you and wise unto salvation. We ask all these things in the name of the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. On uh, several recent occasions, we have watched uh, Abraham uh, make, lack of a better term, uh, mistakes, if you will, spiritually fail. But today we're going to watch him, and in a particular beautiful way, as to how he handles success. And I will tell you, that is a challenge all its own. Very difficult for people, even Christians, to handle great success uh, because not handled properly um, become a source of pride, and uh, that is dangerous to the soul. So Abraham's going to give us a great lesson. Uh, we know contextually he has returned from rescuing his nephew after an incredible victory. And a king priest comes uh, to bless him. Verses 17 to 20. Very interesting, this king priest, because we now know that there are other believers throughout the land. I mean, where'd this guy come from? Well, we don't, we know where he came from geographically, but uh, Moses is just reminding us that the Bible it's not a comprehensive history of every event to which it is examining. It's a selective history, if you will, a theological history. But it is a blessing. God has uh, other men. Uh, and upon his return from his military victory over the four Mesopotamian kings, Abram is met by two kings somewhere west of Jerusalem. Melchizedek is a king-priest. He has two roles, which is somewhat unusual. Uh, more typically, uh, civil governors, kings, uh, were just that, and priests were priests. He has a dual role. And we know immediately that he, he comes uh, as a foreshadowing of the great king Messiah. And he comes from Salem. Both Melchizedek and Salem are proper names. Uh, Melchizedek is literally uh, king of righteousness. Hebrew word king, Melech, righteousness, Sadiq, uh, king of righteousness. Salem is a reference to Jerusalem, derivative of uh, shalom, peace city of peace. Should be a city of peace. But more critically, as I mentioned, he's a priest. It's very unusual in text. It's the first time this word is used in the Old Testament. It becomes a very dominant word throughout the scriptures, but it's the first time. It should catch our attention. We know from the New Testament, not from this text, but from the New Testament, that, as you should be reminded, is a greater a revelation. Revelation is progressive. The farther we go along, the clearer it becomes. So, hence, the New Testament is the greater uh, uh, revelation. It's all revelation from God, about God. 
But again, progressive revelation. So the New Testament is going to tell us that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. If this is indeed typology, and New Testament writers tell us it is, it's indirectly prophetic. So it's telling us a measure about Christ. A tiny measure, to be sure. But one nonetheless that's important to grasp. His genealogy is not listed, not because he's eternal, but as we shall see, his office is. It's obviously a divine emissary because he comes to bless Abram uh, as a representative of God. Uh, I find this uh, somewhat interesting to me because Abram is in the making of a nation, but God never leaves his people alone. Uh, I know there are times in life that are going to break on you where you're going to feel entirely alone. But you're never. If you belong to the great king priest, you are never alone. He always has emissaries to come along your side to help. In a measure, Melchizedek is going to do that to Abram. The significance of Salem is that one day it will become the center of the Davidic kingdom. Now it's been transferred to heaven uh, where the enemies of God cannot get at it. They gnash their teeth. They want to destroy the city that we know as Jerusalem in the Middle East. Uh, whether they do or not, I... I really don't know, but it's really somewhat insignificant to me because true Jerusalem is now in heaven where artillery and tanks and guns can never get at it. I hope uh, the literal city doesn't fall because I'm a supporter of liberal, uh, liberal in the classic sense, uh, liberal democracies. But I don't uh, fret about it because my Jerusalem is in heaven. And uh, one day, I trust, uh, it will come for me. If you know Christ, it will come for you. So again, there's a foreshadowing here of a greater priest who can bless. Uh, That is a profound uh, reminder to all of us because while all of us as Christians are priests of God, there's only one king priest who can truly bless. I'm always amazed when I get emails from people. Some of my Reformed friends, are, they end up blessings. <laughs> Our blessings come from the great king priest. He alone can bless. That's not to mean that the priests in the church can't help us and remind us of God's blessings. Of course, we all do that one another. But only he, purely and simply, can bless his people. And that makes uh, the King Messiah that you and I know as our Savior profoundly significant because you and I have a perpetual need in life for the blessings of God. So he blesses uh, Abraham. Notice how he's uh, described of God most high as a priest with a cultic meal. Uh, the Hebrew uh, Most High is El Elyon. 
implicit in the blessing is that God was the source of his blessing. And now we know why uh, Abram, with this uh, small coalition of families, was able to defeat four kings and their coalition. Perhaps if you were here last uh, Sunday by the grace of God, I tried to describe that as a rather impossible tax because Abram was greatly outnumbered. But always remember something. God plus one is a majority on any field of battle. We admired Abram's boldness and the night attack. That's always a risky thing, certainly before night vision goggles. Uh, that our own uh, army has. And certainly he engaged in a profound uh, tactical risk of dividing his forces. You better be very careful in the field of battle if you divide your forces because they can be piecemealed. Well, it's a bold move. He's successful. Now we know why. God was his success. And he owes his success, therefore, to heaven. So all of us as believers should acknowledge with tribute that our victories are from God. Maybe it's a promotion of work. Maybe it's a a award from civil governor. Uh, Maybe a professor in a class praises you. Ultimately, it comes from God. And therefore, we should render tribute to him, however you choose to do that. And God, very interesting, is described here as the possessor of heaven and earth. Uh, the word uh, comes from the verb, is the verb to acquire as an economic term with a stress here on ownership. That's the stress because God doesn't buy heaven and earth. He owns it. Because he created it. And by the way, he owns it still today because he created it. And irrespective, uh, I don't say this lightly, but I have to say it quickly because of time, your views on modern day evolution or whatever. I'm just reminding you as a professing Christian uh, that God is the creator and he owns what he creates. I love the uh, I love the text of Psalm 139, verse 13. 13, Pardon me. Uh, David says again, the great King of Israel says of God, "Thou didst form my inward parts." Uh, Yes, there's a biological process there because there's natural laws, but God sets it all in motion. People get confused about that. Uh, And because, uh, by the way, application, great furor over this issue of abortion in our culture, God forms the infant in the womb. And woe to anyone who mistreats what he is forming. He goes on to say, David, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. Incredible creative work of the living God. I mean, medical science is a marvelous thing. 
I remember both times going with my wife and seeing, I forget the technical name, sonogram, I mean, I don't know, all that stuff kind of escapes me. I'm still living on the turnip truck, but I thought, you got to be kidding me. That is that? That's what that is? Remarkable. Because God is a majestic, beautiful weaver. I mean, and you're probably like me. You say, well, God, how come this is true about me? How come some guys like Bower Socks don't have any hair? Just, I don't worry about it. I don't get upset about it. I'd rather have it. I'm reminded of it when I look at my high school picture every morning in the window, just as a humorous aside. Poor Philip. But God is my weaver. To him goes the glory. Uh, have a high esteem of yourself because of him who made you. So implicit in the name is God's supremacy and sovereignty. Verse 20, Melchizedek blesses God. Notice the description of verse 20. This is very critical. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now we know explicitly that God was the cause of the victory. There's an incredible tactical victory uh, by Abraham, who, by the way, was not a trained soldier. He went to rescue a nephew because he was family. We take care of our own. He goes to do that without complaining. I would have been complaining all the way along because of Lot. Lot made the choice. Let him bear the consequences of his bad choice. No, he goes to do family duty without complaining. And God was with him, and God delivered his enemies into his hand. The nominal form of the word deliver is uh, the word shield. Shield. In those days, an essential element of the warrior on the battlefield. Psalm 18.30, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in Him. Lots of battles in life. Some of them literal. Most of them in terms of civilian life or spiritual, metaphorical. God is a shield. Thank God, because if He wasn't, uh, the fiery darts of the evil one would get us. Kill us spiritually. Uh, wound us spiritually. So, in all things, we should give thanks to God. Remember the dark days of the beginning of the Second World War. I mean, those were really dark days. You've read any biographies or histories of Churchill and uh, all the things that were going on in uh, Great Britain, political controversy in America about whether we should get involved in this or that, and uh, war begins, and Occasion. I forget the name of the particular conference, but um, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt meet, I believe on a battleship it was, uh, in the open oceans. So kind of a dangerous time given Nazi submarines. And they sang a Christian hymn. I have my suspicions. 
it's irrelevant that I do whether either one of them were Christians. They sang a hymn. Here, here a, a small measure of the words. Our God, our help in ages past. Our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast. Incredible dangers of world war. The likes of which the world had never seen. Our shelter from the stormy blast. And our eternal home. Be our, be our guard while life, while troubles last and our eternal hope. Even pagans can sing that hymn, albeit improperly. Uh, I've always been somewhat amused at Winston Churchill. He, yeah. he said, I, uh, I support the church from the outside like a flying buttress. It always amused me. I mean, he wouldn't profess to have been a Christian. Certainly, uh, I'm sure he was baptized in the Anglican church. But um, you can't be a Christian and uh, support the church from the outside. You have to support it from within. Uh, because that's God's family. That's God's uh, children. Uh, that's uh, uh, the uh, wife that the great husband Christ marries. But nonetheless, great, uh, great history will be our guard while troubles last. So it's a great, uh, it's a great question here, isn't there? Implicit. Uh, King Messiah is a priest. He's the only high priest, I believe. So who is your priest? I trust it's the Lord Christ. Because no other priest will do. Now, all of us are lesser priests, but he's the only high priest. Uh, certainly in the Catholic and the Orthodox churches, there are human priests ordained as such. And uh, Roman Catholicism, for example, they distribute the grace of God. Only Christ directly or indirectly, distributes the grace of God. He may use means. He often uses means. I trust in God's grace. I'm one of them. But only He distributes the grace of God. Human priests cannot do that. So who is your priest? Trust it's Jesus Christ. So because of this, Abraham gives a tenth of, of his tribute to God. It's from this concept that we have the word tithe. Oftentimes people say, well, I'm, here's my tithe. Um, so it's a tenth of whatever. Uh, it's not, I don't think, locked in when we come to the New Testament, but a lot of people follow that simply as a guide. Some people give more, some less because of family circumstances. I don't know. I don't, I don't worry about any of that because I know that God's going to sustain His people and His work because this is His work, not mine. Uh, but He gives tribute to Melchizedek. Verses 21 to 24. 
Uh, we have the beauty of what Abram understands implicitly about his success. Because there, he refuses the blessings of a pagan king. After Melchizedek, the king of Sodom wants his people back. And Abram fulfills an oath to take no property from him lest he be perceived as blessing Abram and sharing in the victory. Incredible danger there. He doesn't want to give the king of Sodom any satisfaction that part of the victory uh, comes from you. No, Abram is saying all of the victory came from God. Every event, every plan, every detail of the battle came from God and its success. Remember that when you're successful. Remember that when the professor praises you or you get an academic award or you, uh, someone is singing your praises about whatever or you get an award from a civil governor or whatever the case might be. Uh, I got somewhat privileged while well, I was in the United States Army to get several awards. It's kind of chump change. In the Army, you wear them on your chest. Uh, they're hanging in my... <laughs> in my house. But whatever achievement was being acknowledged, I mean, I can tell you God was simply gracious to me far beyond I ever deserved. And you should think the same way. So he refuses the tribute of a pagan king and he gives it all to God. Because he knows now that the source of his victory is divine. Great reminder here, 1 Samuel 17, 47 that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord's. If you're fighting some spiritual battle in your life, then I'm sure you are. If not, you will be. You have a shield and the battle is His. Trust Him. Depend upon Him. Use the brain that God gave you. Use trusted advisors. Whatever the case might be. But ultimately, indirectly, Maybe even immediately the battle is his because you are a son of God. The battle is the Lord's. David's words as he goes to confront Goliath, a little boy facing the giant of a man, unarmed but with a slingshot. How would Las Vegas bet on those odds? Because they don't know the Lord. David did. Proverbs 21 and 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. So uh, Horses are agents used by human soldiers. They're going out to battle. They better go prepared. Because God uses agents. He uses means. So you stand up your horse. You get it ready. You check your armor. You go through all the details. Just don't go out there willy-nilly with nothing and say, well, God, God will fix it. No, He uses means. Use the means He's delivered to you. If you're a soldier going out to battle, you better be armed up. If you do so without it, you're acting foolishly. 
Uh, you're not using faith and reason. You're using faith alone. But God gives us a mind. We use faith and reason. Something very essential here that Moses is glossing over because the Bible's not a comprehensive history. The text is silent about Lot, isn't it? Lot has moved from here into the city of Sodom. That's why he's taken captive. We presume he is grateful to his uncle for being delivered. but expresses it in profound silliness by moving back to Sodom. You know, I would have thought he would have said, you know, probably shouldn't live in that place. It's kind of a really loathsome place to begin with and utterly spiritually disgusting. Look, uncle, can we some manner form team up and Help me to sort through where I should be tending my flocks that ultimately came from Abram. Blessings of God. I mean, uh, I remember a number of years ago, I, I, I think it was at Katrina, um, uh, our civil government turned to a, a retiring lieutenant general. He's always asked about all these silly things by the press corps. And he finally, at some point in frustration, I presume, he said, look, Let's don't get stuck on stupid. Lot is stuck on stupid. Now, I will confess to you, I've done a lot of stupid things in my life. You confess them before God, you repent, and you move on. You don't get stuck on them. We are fallen sinners in need of God's grace, deliverance every day. You will never graduate from that. Lot is stuck. We'll learn about him later. Would that in God's grace, he would have changed a measure of his ways. Uh, the text is a foreshadowing of the greater King Messiah um, is to whom you and I owe tribute. Abram gives tribute to an earthly representative of Christ. You and I know the living Christ and because He has rescued us and delivered us. We owe Him tribute. For the victories He has and will win for us. Uh, proof of this is David's allusion to Melchizedek from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Uh, that's what's really confirming, uh, again, that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now, we read the text as our call to worship, rightfully so, because it's embodied in our lesson this morning. Uh, but if you look at Psalm 110 in your text, uh, verse 4, The Lord has sworn, it will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The anti-type, very interesting psalm, pay attention to, uh, to verse 1. Um, the anti-type is the identity of whom David is acknowledging as his Lord. 
So David is the great king of Israel. He had the most highest civil office in the entire land. And he's giving tribute to another king. Because the other king to whom he is giving tribute to is King Messiah Jesus Christ. But the, uh, the king of Israel is paying tribute to an even greater king. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make enemies a footstool for your feet. By the way, very quickly as an application, interpretive is speaking from the text, the Lord is doing that even this very day. There are many enemies of our Savior in the land, throughout the land. They seem to grow in intensity, ferocity. I pray almost every evening that God would suppress the wickedness in this land. Uh, but God is subduing them, and one day He will destroy them. The psalm is therefore acknowledging the universal rule of God. It's affected by an exalted king testified to here. It begins with our Savior's session to the throne, after which he awaits from Zion the time appointed by God for the destruction of his enemies. Uh, you and I know that New Testament, greater, greater uh, revelation uh, is uh, our Lord's resurrection and session to his heavenly throne. He is now seated upon that throne. He is now ruling from heaven. And all the chaos that seems to be going on throughout the world, much of it seemingly uh, simply the lauding and applauding of great wickedness. He is the king, affecting spiritual ruin of his enemies and preparing, metaphorically speaking, as a soldier for the uh, last great battle to utterly destroy them. The coronation formula implies his superiority to David because he is at the right hand of God testifying to his divinity, his deity. Christ, the Son of God, is God, was always God. There never was a time when he was not God. In addition, Messiah fulfills the dual office as king-priest. As a king, he rules. He conquers all. He is subduing all. He is at work. Uh, I find myself on occasion getting angry at things I see in the world. I say, remind myself, Phil, Messiah is still on the throne. And men may hate that. But he is always going to be on the throne until he comes. And you should remember that. Because all of us owe him tribute. Because he's the greater King Messiah. As priest, he ministers to the people of God. The psalm tells us as priestly warrior, he leads a vast army of his subjects who will see his victory. We're, we are part of his army. You know the great hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Obviously a spiritual hymn. But onward. Don't be like Lot, get stuck somewhere. Move onward. It's very interesting, Psalm 110, because it's perhaps uh, the most quoted of the entire Old Testament in the New. It's quoted or alluded to some 25 times in the New Testament. It's a profoundly significant 
because of its testimony about Christ. Teaches us about Christ, the great king priest. He is our king, defeating our enemies, subduing them in his own time, in his own way, I grant you. He's our only great high priest. No earthly priest can forgive sin. Only this priest forgives sin. Go to any other priest. That's why I asked you earlier, who is your priest? You may be in a bad way. Now, as a priest to you, as a priest, I may say, well, let's, let's, let's pray together. Let's, um, let's confess. If you're a Christian, I don't believe you need to ask for forgiveness because I believe at the cross we're forgiven for all time. Somewhat of a dispute among Christian church, uh, but there's always disputes. So it's just my belief. But we are to confess. You don't confess. Sin has a way of worming its way in, like the beginning of a cancer that will only grow if it's not interdicted. So get about it and confess. Thank God for forgiveness. Treasure Him for forgiveness. Praise Him for forgiveness. And then affect repentance. Turn away. Don't get stuck like Lot. And acknowledge with tribute your great and only deliverer. So this is a Typological event is a prophetic psalm fulfilled by Christ in stages. In stages. He's accomplished great spiritual victory at the cross. Uh, the literal victory will occur. Will occur. Don't be discouraged. God's at work. Reigning and ruling. The author of the book of Hebrews testifies that Christ certainly is the greater fulfillment. Uh, context, very interesting. If you turn Hebrews chapter 7. If you have your New Testaments, I do, I do encourage you to turn there. Uh, context is the priesthood of Christ that's superior to the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, what's the big deal with that? Why is the author having to tell uh, the members of his church that Christ is superior to the Aaronic priesthood? Because they want to go back to the Aaronic priesthood having left the Aaronic priesthood. Don't go back. Onward, Christian soldiers. The Aaronic priesthood has been fulfilled totally, majestically, finally and irrevocably in Christ. Because His priesthood is an eternal priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16 and 17. For as witness to him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weaknesses and blessings, pardon me, and uselessness. It's the Old Testament. It had a profoundly important role in the lives of the people of God. But with the coming of the Savior, it is surpassed by incredible greatness and majesty and perfection in the only great high priest, King Messiah. So the immediate context is the community is considering leaving Christ for the Aaronic priesthood, which is inferior. Look at verses 22 to 25. This is why it's describing that his priesthood is greater and surpasses the Aaronic. So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. 
And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, he is able to save forever those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you're going to go to an earthly priest, are you? Catholic Church, Orthodox Church, for forgiveness of sin? You've gone to the wrong priest. They can't forgive. Only Jesus can do that. Not only that, he lives forever to make intercession. Your king priest is so majestic in his provisions for you that every day he makes intercession for you and all of your needs, whatever they might be, physical, spiritual, material, you name it, he's praying. And by the way, he knows exactly what to pray. And by the way, the Father answers his prayers. Well, you might flippantly say, well, Phil, that doesn't work. Well, just pay attention. Give it time. God answers in His own time. In His own way. But He answers for His people by His King Priest. There's another allusion to the psalm in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point is what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens. Boom! Psalm 110. Fulfilled at the session post-resurrection. Never ever to render another sacrifice. It's done. It's finished forever. Never ever again to subject himself to the hand of evil men. He's done with that. He beat them all. And he is our victor. He's now awaiting the consummation of the spiritual victory he won for us while he gathers his conquest. He is still gathering his elect. Why does it take the Lord so long to come? Well, thank God he did. I would have never become a Christian had he not waited. We all need the Lord to tarry while he gathers his elect from the four corners of the world. He's doing that by his gracious power. Notice I said he gathers Notice the direct object, his elect, in the four corners of the universe. I read to you from uh, Revelation chapter 20, the binding of of Satan. Uh, While he's gathering his conquest, he uh, binds the spiritual ability of Satan to deceive the elect. Satan wants to deceive the elect. He throws everything into his conquest. He is not able because God has limited his power. He has a lot of power. He does not have the power to deceive the elect of God because he's been bound. Matthew chapter 13, 29 elucidates this. How can a strong man, how can a man come into the house, the strong man come into that house and bind the strong man of that house and plunder his possessions? That's why you and I came to faith. You know Jesus is your Savior. 
I know there were lots of earthly means, maybe a praying grandmother or uh, a dear neighbor or a kind professor. I mean, I don't know. God uses a multitude of means. But ultimately, his binding of the strong man is his ability to plunder the world of his possession, namely those God gave him to purchase and redeem. There is an implicit reminder from Psalm 110 that's really all over the Bible. You do not want to be one of God's enemies. Revelation 6.17 The great day of the Lord has come. Who is able to stand in that day? No one. 1 Corinthians 15 He will come. He will reign until He's put all enemies under His feet. Your doom has already been written for you. Take heed. If you're not a Christian, ponder your eternal estate. And for all his victories in winning us to himself and making us part of his army as king priest, to say nothing of the victory great yet to come, we owe him tribute. And I don't mean simply money. That's a chump change. Again, I understand the church needs finances, but God's always provided for this church. Uh, well, I never ask for money except for missionaries. And I'm not doing it now either, by the way. But, but there's time, there's uh, prayer, there's all those elements that come involved. Uh, but Abram paid a tribute. Let that be a guide to you. Now, the greater reality, ladies and gentlemen, is we owe Christ everything. We don't owe Him a tenth. That's all he asks for Abram. We owe him everything. I remind myself, ladies and gentlemen, every day, everything I own. My toothbrush. Oh, Barisak, you're being silly. No. Everything that I own belongs to him. That includes my bank account, savings account, blah, blah, blah. It's his. He's the owner. Gives it to me to use as a steward. Take care of my family, my loved ones, and do things. Support the church. But for His glory. His glory. Because of who He is. And this is what we must learn from Abram's success. Honor Him for whom honor is due. And our Lord is priest, our priest, worthy of eternal tribute.